A despondent woman was walking along a lonely beach when she saw a bottle on the sand. She picked it up. She pulled out the cork. Whoosh! Big puff of smoke. You've released me from my prison, the genie told her. To show my thanks, I grant you three wishes. But take care, for each wish you ask for, your partner will receive twice as much. Why, the woman said, that's not fair. He left me for another woman. Why should he get anything? He doesn't deserve anything. Oh, sorry, those are the rules, replied the genie. And the woman shrugged her shoulders and then asked, I'll have a million dollars. There was a flash of light and a million dollars appeared at her feet. However, at the same instant, in a far-off land, her wayward husband looked down to see twice that amount at his feet. And your second wish? Jeannie, I want the world's most expensive diamond necklace. Another flash of light, and the woman was holding the precious treasure. And in that distant land, her husband was looking for a gem uh, broker to whom he could sell his latest treasure. Jeannie, is it really true that my husband gets double of whatever I wish for? And the genie said it was indeed true. Okay, genie. I'm ready for my last wish, the woman said. Scare me half to death. <laughs> Revenge is a, what is it, a dessert best served cold. We live in a world of pain and hurt. Human beings have this capacity to be unbelievably loving and kind, and they also have the capacity for being unimaginably cruel and unjust. And I guess the field of play in this world is the same for us all. Every day we associate with people who could bless us, or they could hurt us deeply. How do we cope, how do we respond then towards people who behave to us in ways that are mean and hurtful and offensive, or nasty people? But this was an issue that Jesus talked about, I think, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7, which we are slowly working our way through. Here's what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, I mean, once again, another of these situations where I, I would have loved to see the look on the faces of the people that heard Jesus say these particular words. Because what is said I think, would have made people do a double take. Jesus' advice on how to respond to offence or nastiness or injustice is just so 
different to the cultural norm of his day and probably of ours as well. Well, or perhaps there's actually a little principle there that's worth just parking for a second and uh, underlining because the values and the, the, uh, the worldview of the kingdom of God are at times very different to the values and the worldview of the kingdoms of this world. But being a follower of Jesus is actually a whole lot more than just simply, simply adopting a belief system that affects what happens to us when we die. As if it's just an internal, personal philosophy that a person subscribes to. It also actually infects the way that we think and behave toward other people. It, it changes us to become a follower of Jesus. There's a cost to be paid. And, and living the Jesus way actually implies that we adopt and we live by the standards or the values of God's kingdom. And, and when those values clash with the culture of the world in which we've grown up, then the true follower of Jesus makes a conscious choice to live by the kingdom values. It's been suggested that there are a few passages in the New Testament that contain more of the essence of the Christian ethic or attitude than the verses that we've read this morning. I mean, to begin with, Jesus draws our attention to the old uh, principle or ancient law of retribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know your Latin, lex talionis, retaliation authorized by law, the law of tit for tat, the wrong action I do against you, uh, you have the right to repay me with the same action. And, and three times uh, in the Old Testament law of Moses, uh, it is alluded to uh, or mentioned. For instance, as one example, Leviticus 24 verses 19 and 20 Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. However, this was not only a principle that the Jews lived by since the time of Moses. This actual principle is recorded in the, uh, the, the earliest known record of human law on the planet, the Code of Hammurabi that uh, dates back to ancient Babylon, actually predates the law of Moses by 400 years. Uh, king Hammurabi was the sixth king of ancient Babylon, and this particular principle is in the code that he gave people to live by that dates all the way back to 1754 BC. So virtually every human society has had a similar concept of fair retribution for wrongs that are done against a person. If I do something that uh, injures or disadvantages you, then it's only just or fair that some measure of revenge or retaliation be made that evens the score. 
But it's actually important to understand the context in which the law of Moses recorded this very principle of retribution, because it's often actually misunderstood. The idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was not, as many people think of it, a license for revenge. Moses' motivation was actually more meant to be a limitation on the extent of revenge. And behind this this principle of eye for eye and tooth for tooth was actually the concept of mercy, limiting retribution and punishment to the same measure as the actual offence committed. I mean, without this kind of law, you might have the scenario that we see in the movies these days uh, where uh, in, in organised crime where someone you know, stands on the toes of the local mafia boss or somehow insults his wife and in revenge or retaliation, a contract is taken out on that person's life. Well, Moses actually sought to limit retribution to the actual value of the original crime. If I stand on someone's toes, I can expect to have my toes stomped on as well, not find myself at the bottom of the harbour wearing a pair of concrete slippers. that, That would be punishment that went way beyond the value of the original crime. In other words, let the punishment fit the crime. But then Jesus went on to suggest an even greater principle. I guess we'd say two wrongs don't make a right. He didn't actually contradict the law of Moses, but he did introduce a concept of kingdom life that went a whole lot further. Verse 39, he says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Here, here is a classic example of where the Values, the ways of the kingdom of God are different to the ways and the values of the world in which we live. Back in 1982, I was invited to speak at a conference in Papua New Guinea. It was my first visit outside the borders of uh, uh, my own country and culture. And in uh, Papua New Guinea, those of you who have been or lived there will understand this. There is a long-established cultural tradition of what looks like revenge uh, to the outsider and uh, quite barbaric, actually, but it's actually grounded in logical economic theory of parity. It's called payback. If a person from one tribe or one family is injured or killed, even if it's in an accident, that person's tribe seeks to inflict the same injury or death on the tribe of the person who caused the original offence. And it was explained to me quite clearly that if you're driving or we're driving in a car on the road and we inadvertently knock somebody over, the last thing you do is stop and help that person. Instead, you drive as fast as you can to the local police station and you ask them to lock you up. Uh, protecting you from payback. Well, I mean, thankfully, in more recent years, that kind of revenge tends to be sorted out now in financial time, uh, terms and exchange of, of livestock rather than spilling blood. But it's basically the law of tit-for-tat or economic parity between groups of people. 
Actually, something similar did begin to happen amongst the Jews uh, over the centuries as well. Uh, the concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth actually became more metaphorical and the infliction of punishment tended to be calculated in economic terms uh, rather than uh, a system of, uh, of, of open revenge. And also, the law of Moses, when it came to this idea of tooth for tooth and eye for eye, it was actually some, <clears throat> something that was worked out or enacted in a legal or a judicial system rather than just open slather, you hit me, I hit you back. But then Jesus says, in the kingdom of God, it's quite different. And when Jesus' original audience heard him say what he said, I think many of them would have wondered if he was out of his mind. Come on, Jesus. You can't be serious here. I mean, the, the cultures of our world, since time immemorial, I guess, have been consumed with the quest for justice and standing up for one's rights. It isn't fair that evil goes unpunished or unresponded to. But like I say, many times the culture of God's kingdom is different to the cultures of our world. Now, that's not to suggest that there aren't times and places where we do stand up uh, for righteousness and justice, and we do try and expose uh, corruption. There is a very definite place for that kind of prophetic stand. True. But there are also other times when anger and evil and oppression are actually best met with forgiveness and non-retaliation and not seeking revenge. And to get his point across, Jesus suggested a number of life scenarios in his day where this kingdom principle of non-retaliation might be applied. Now, to fully grasp this, though, we, we do need to read what he is saying here with a, a first-century Middle Eastern worldview. Now, the first thing he suggests in verse 39, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What was Jesus saying by that? Well, contrary, actually, to popular opinion, Jesus was not here actually talking so much about pacifism or non-aggression. He was talking about how do you cope with an insult. Suppose two people are standing face to face with each other, and given that the majority of people, certainly in the ancient world, uh, even today, are right-handed, how is it possible for one person to strike another person on their right cheek. Unless you're something of a contortionist, the only way that you can possibly do that actually is with the back of the hand. Well, here's the interpretive key to what Jesus is talking about. In those days, the striking of a person with the back of the hand was an act of extreme insult. It was one thing to hit someone with an open or a closed fist, but it was something even more to hit them with the back of the hand, for that became a demeaning, a deep insult or a put-down. I guess in a metaphorical sense, uh, the backhanded slap could actually also be something that is, uh, is verbal rather than just something that is physical. So Jesus was actually talking here 
about the way we react or respond when people insult us. When a person abuses us or insults us, even, he would say, I think, in the most demeaning of ways, <coughs> whether it's with a backhanded slap or a verbal lashing of the tongue, the Christian response is non-retaliation. But more than that, the Christian response is to turn the other cheek even at the risk of more insult. Now, I mean, as principles go, you definitely could apply this to pacifism, so that's not entirely out of place. But Jesus was going further than just talking about physical fighting. Actually, many pacifists loudly campaign for non-aggression and non-violence in the physical sense, but oh my goodness, can they be violent with their tongues? One bruises and breaks the skin on the outside, the other bruises and breaks the spirit on the inside. And I think both, Jesus would say, are wrong. So for the follower of Jesus, in the face of insults and abuse, there is self-restraint, not retaliation. And to be sure, this will be the case in his day, if not ours, this runs counter to the way that our world spins. When someone says or does something to us that's offensive and hurtful, well, the way of the kingdom, Jesus said, is to absorb and to leave revenge in the hands of God, who guards our reputation. And wasn't this actually the example of Jesus himself? We're entering Easter week. And remember the insults and the attacks that were made against him that first Easter. People misunderstood his motives, his theology. They called him a glutton and a drunkard because he spent time at parties with sinners. They called him a friend of prostitutes and tax collectors. They slandered his reputation. They accused him of being a servant of the devil. But Jesus did not retaliate. He didn't slap back the faces of those who insulted him. Even at his trial before Caiaphas or Herod or Pilate, Jesus remained still and absorbed the insults thrown at him. The, the earliest Christians were labelled as bloodthirsty cannibals because they talked of eating and drinking the body and blood of their leader. They were accused of incestuous behaviour and orgies because they talked about their love for brothers and sisters and the family of God. They were regarded as traitors of the state because they refused to declare that Caesar is Lord. How do they respond? With counter-argument and equal backhand slapping? No, they by and large took it on the chin. And they left their reputation in the hands of God who has the power to change the hearts of evil men. It was Jesus who said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then the second example that Jesus gives, verse 40, if anyone, if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him take your coat as well. 
Some people have drawn from this particular statement encouragement to be generous in our dealings with other people. That's not a bad principle to live by, giving more than is asked for. But actually, when you understand the culture of Jesus' day into which he was speaking, he was actually referring here to legal rights. And the illustration he was using had to do with how legal contracts were actually formalised. The shirt, the tunic that a person wore that Jesus refers to was like that inner uh, long sack-like garment that men would wear in those days and uh, they were made of cotton or linen usually. When the poorest of men had, even the poorest of men actually had a change of shirt or tunic. The coat, on the other hand, the cloak, that was more like a big blanket-like outer garment that a man would wrap around himself as he travelled during the day or at night time keep himself warm with. Most men only had just one coat or cloak. In the law of Moses, the man's shirt was sometimes put up as a form of collateral in the formalizing of an agreement. Uh, Giving of one's shirt or tunic was a personal statement of integrity and surety that an obligation would be fulfilled. The law was quite specific that a man's coat or cloak was never to be held or retained for any length of time as a form of collateral. I mean, an example, that's Exodus 22, verse 26, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, the the law of Moses put a limit on how much a person could extract from someone else who was defaulting on a contract. Regardless of what they have done and how much they owe, a person's cloak was not to be held back from them. And and over the years, the coat or the cloak became a symbol of the most basic of human rights. A person may not have much in the way of possessions or dignity or pride, but every man has the right to his own coat to keep him warm at night. So this, this is the background behind this particular statement of Jesus. And his original audience would have got this. The point he was making? Be prepared to give up your human rights. The follower of Jesus is willing to forego his rights in life if it will help serve God's cause. In those days, there was really only one class of people who wouldn't have possessed the dignity or rights to their own coat or cloak. Uh, even the most basic of human rights was denied to these people. They were regarded as, as chattels or human machines, slaves. They belonged to another. They lived to please their master rather than themselves. And when Jesus said these words, it was possible that he was alluding to this concept as well. To be a Christian is actually not to be on the top of the pile. It's actually to be on the bottom Rather than being served by others, the Jesus follower is a servant to others. Jesus said the greatness in the kingdom of God comes through being a servant, the exact opposite to the ways of the world. The world that we live in is, is paranoid about protecting human rights, maybe not without cause. 
That there are many instances of exploitation and injustice in our world where, where, where people have been ripped off or oppressed and the, the, the scriptures encourage us to be prophetic and active and to stand up for the, the justice and the rights of the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. The gospel gives us back our stature in that sense. But there's also a sense in which we can play on our rights too much. We can be dominated by a trade union mentality that is aggressive and angry lest our rights be infringed, whereas the way of God's kingdom is not so much dominated by rights as responsibilities. Think of this this week as you listen and watch the news and the issues being talked about. The way of the kingdom of God is not so much about human dignity as giving that up to serve others. We follow the one who said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We, We follow the one who set us an example this week by washing the feet of his disciples. All of which raises the question, are we willing to give up our rights for the sake of God's cause, even toward those who insult us and treat us harshly? The one more analogy that Jesus gave, verse 41, he said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What's that all about? Well, in Jesus' day, of course, the nation of what we call Israel was an occupied country. It had been conquered and was part of the Roman Empire. It was governed by the Roman army. Conquering and occupying regimes, I guess throughout history, don't usually enjoy the favor of the the local people. They usually hate it. And in those days, the rule of law was the rule of the sword or the spear. And if a Roman soldier happened to tap you on the shoulder with a spear and ask you to do something, you had to do it. That is, if you wanted to see out the rest of the day. And a common form of bullying or forced labor that a Roman soldier would engage in was to ask a person to carry his bag or his armor, possibly for a mile, in the opposite direction from that which they were heading. And the local people lived in constant fear that they might be conscripted to do this. And you can imagine how joyfully and willingly they would have obliged. They did as they were asked. It would have been... Suicide or death by cop if they didn't. But inside their hatred would have simmered and boiled towards the Romans. So you can just imagine the ripples that would have gone through the crowd as Jesus was talking about this. Don't just go one mile, go two miles. Serve them willingly. Would have sounded like collaboration with the enemy. Once again, Jesus is illustrating the fact that the relationship with God means servanthood. The Christian serves others, even those who are his or her enemies. But maybe there was another point to which Jesus was alluding. And that is the way we respond to oppression and injustice can either change the heart of the oppressor or make him or her even more determined. The natural reaction to tyranny or bullying or oppressive behavior is what? Fight back. Tit for tat. Give them as much as they've given an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or if they've hit me, I'm going to hit them back ten times harder. 
Problem is, hardly ever works. Conflict is very seldom resolved that way. When anger is met with equal anger, the angry man tends to become more angry. And when we behave begrudgingly toward those who give us orders, those with the power tend to become more determined to make us do it. But when we meet anger or bullying or tyranny or oppression with compliance and love and willingness to serve, the air goes out of the balloon. It becomes increasingly difficult for that tyranny to continue. The bully begins to lose interest. It's no fun anymore. Listen to how Paul put it at the end of Romans chapter 12. He said, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. According to Jesus, the way of the kingdom of heaven is vastly different to the ways of the world. And when we do, as Jesus suggested in verse 39, when we do not resist an evil person, we, well, we disempower his wrath. We show forth the kingdom of God here on earth. Likewise, when we show generosity toward the person who wants to borrow from us, in verse 40, because generosity and kindness and graciousness and willingness gives birth to like kind. So in closing this morning, maybe some of us live or work amidst or under what some might call unjust tyranny. We feel like our rights are infringed or that we're bullied by someone who's mean and unfair. I wonder what might happen this week if we tried an experiment. Instead of meeting injustice with a spirit of indignation or retribution or passive aggression, what might happen if we took Jesus' advice seriously here and turned the other cheek, thought less about our rights, left revenge in the hands of God, who's so much better at it than we could ever be anyway. Now, Jesus' advice in this verse, for some of us, will be a bitter pill to swallow. But what if it works? Let's pray together.